Today on episode 25 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we discuss whether anti-slap hearings really need to be set within 30 days. And we're going to examine the just-released decision regarding the case brought by Gone with the Wind legend Olivia de Havilland. Play me in, Joe. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of guys. from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Well, the masses demanded it, and here we are. Welcome to the 25th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California Boutique Law Firm of Morris & Stone. Boutique because we serve a specialized clientele and because we are really sharp dressers. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714 714- Nine five four zero seven zero zero, or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Fun and successful times at Morris & Stone. Our feet hurt from kicking so much butt. And be sure to stick around for the after show to hear about how I had to school the Court of Appeal. In the last episode, I told you about the two anti-slap hearings I had coming up in the next couple of days. Now I can report on those outcomes. First, there was the Magic Man case. In case you missed it, a bunch of people said things about the plaintiff's business online, and one of them used the screen name Magic Man. Not really, but for purposes of this story. Now, my client isn't Magic Man, but for various reasons, the plaintiff thought he was and named him in the action. The plaintiff opposed our anti-slap motion with a declaration from a third party stating that she knew my client and that he uses the name screen name Magic Man. I was concerned that the court would say that if the declaration is credited, that's enough to survive our anti-slap motion, even if there was a total lack of foundation for the claim that my client was Magic Man. Now, I'm happy to report that the judge did his job and properly treated our anti-slap motion as an evidentiary hearing and concluded that the declaration stating that my client was Magic Man could not be accepted as true. Anti-slap motion granted. My client is now entirely out of the case on all claims. There was one really entertaining aspect of the hearing on the Magic Man case. I had argued in the motion that plaintiff was a limited public figure in order to add a malice requirement to his defamation claim. When plaintiff failed to marshal any competent evidence in the opposition to the anti-slap motion, I actually pointed out in my reply that the determination of whether he was a public figure really didn't matter because plaintiff had not shown any evidence to show he was more likely than not to prevail. In other words, the malice requirement might be important in determining if the statements were defamatory, but since plaintiff had offered no evidence that my client had posted the comments, the limited public figure analysis was moot. Move along, nothing to see here. Nonetheless, come time for oral argument, opposing counsel devoted almost all of his argument to the public figure argument. And here's where it got fun. I had argued that plaintiff was a public figure, as evidenced by his own website, where he basically states that he is a god of the particular industry and has been consulted by government agencies. Uh, He claimed that he had his own show on the National Geographic channel, yada, yada, yada. Opposing counsel argued, in essence, that, yes, it does say all of that on his website, but he just made that up, so he's not really a public figure. God, I love this job. The second case took an unexpected course, but was still a great result for our client. There, plaintiff was suing my client for slander and intentional infliction of emotional distress, among other claims. The alleged slander, if you can believe it, was my client's report to the police. 
and the emotional distress plaintiff suffered was from the lawsuit my client filed against him. Clearly, both are protected activities. With this motion, I had no real concerns because the conduct was so clearly protected. My only slight concern was that despite my best efforts to educate him, I was worried that the judge might not follow the reasoning of Baral versus Schnitt. I always have trouble saying that. Baral versus Schnitt. I was using the anti-slap process to reach in and strike specific words and allegations from the complaint, and I was worried that the judge might not get that, it, that I was bringing a special motion to strike. Indeed, where my anti-slap motion had always been shown on the docket as either an anti-slap motion or special motion to strike, this one was shown as a, quote, motion to strike portions of the complaint. So apparently at least whoever put it on the docket got it. Now, this judge does not issue tentative rulings, so I went to the oral argument all raring to go, and the judge announced that he was setting the matter for a Walker hearing. In a sense, our anti-slap motion had worked far too well. Based on what the judge saw in our anti-slap motion, he concluded that the case was extremely weak at best, with very little in potential damages. Instead of ruling on our motion, he set the matter for a Walker hearing to determine if it should be moved to limited jurisdiction. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, a Walker hearing allows the court to uh, basically have the attorneys come in and present evidence on the value of the case. If it's less than $25,000, then obviously it should be in limited jurisdiction court. That was a first for me. I would have far preferred that the judge rule on the motion, even if he did want to order a Walker hearing, but I have to begrudgingly agree that his approach has some logical consistency. If this case was filed in the wrong court due to the amount in controversy, then the judge really shouldn't be ruling on our anti-slap motion. And from the client's standpoint, since the case would have gone forward anyway, since the anti-slap motion did not attack all the claims, it is far better to have it moved to the limited jurisdiction court. But as you can imagine, it was very anticlimactic. The entertaining part was that it put plaintiff and his counsel in a very uncomfortable position. If they successfully fought being reassigned to limited jurisdiction, they would put the anti-slap motion back on the calendar and would be on the hook for all my attorney fees. On the other hand, they could avoid the anti-slap motion by just agreeing that the matter should be reclassified, but then they would be capping any damages at $25,000. My bet was that they would allow the matter to be reassigned to limited jurisdiction, and I won the bet. They did not fight the reassignment, and apparently giving up on the whole thing, they dismissed the case. And continuing with our hit parade, an attorney named Lenore Albert sued our client and many others for things they posted about her online and re-responded with a successful anti-slap motion. I've talked about this case before, but the latest development was that she appealed the anti-slap ruling and the award of attorney fees, and the Court of Appeal just issued its opinion, finding in our favor on both claims. The opinion had some very interesting language about possible actions against the website ripoffreport.com, which was one of the co-defendants. Albert sued both Yelp and Ripoff Report, the company name for Ripoff Report is eccentric, for what she contended were defamatory posts about her. That, of course, runs afoul of the Communications Decency Act, and both entities brought successful anti-slap motions. But on appeal, Albert came up with an extortion theory. Now, it didn't win the day because there was no mention of that theory in the complaint, but here is what the court said, quote, Perhaps for sake of argument, Albert might have indeed been able to challenge causes of action for unfair competition or even extortion against Eccentric based on allegations of its putatively extortionate business model. There is some authority to that effect. But when Eccentric's anti-slap motion was filed, Albert's ability to amend to add new claims ended. Close quote. And then to put a finer point on it, the court said, In the interest of justice, though, no costs on appeal are awarded eccentric, which is the lucky beneficiary of Albert's own failure to include an extortion cause of action in her complaint. 
Now, that sure appears to indicate that the 4th District is open to the idea that a properly pleaded case against eccentric ripoff report could survive the Communications Decency Act. Okay, let's get down to today's issue. This topic came about due to a horrible mistake I thought I'd made. Like the old joke goes, I thought I made a mistake once, but I was wrong. Now picture this. I'm sitting in the court of Judge Ronald Bauer in the Orange County Superior Court waiting for my anti-slap motion to be called. Judge Bauer loves to dispose of motions on procedural grounds. We were like number 14 on the calendar, and as he worked his way through the docket, he disposed of motion after motion on procedural grounds. There was a motion to be relieved as counsel, denied for failure to properly notice the other side. There was a motion to compel discovery responses, granted, but sanctions denied for failing to provide a blank for the sanctions on the proposed order. And so it went as he worked his way through the calendar, denying motion after motion on procedural grounds. So I decided to look at my motion to see if there were any procedural issues I needed to be ready to address. Proof of service proper? Check. Items I want stricken properly specified? Check. Explanation of why the motion is not being heard within 30 days set forth in the notice? Wait a second. Where is that language? I always include that language. I always put something in like, hearing dates set for the earliest possible date using court's reservation system. Where's the damn language? Oh yeah, silly me. Judge Bauer doesn't use a reservation system. You just set the date whenever you want, so you can always set it within the 30 days. So I'll just confirm that I set it within the 30 days. Thumb back to the motion. Motion was filed on February 19, and today's hearing is March 26th. What? So I sat there for about two terror-filled minutes thinking after all this work, Judge Bauer was going to deny my motion for failing to set it within 30 days. Then I remembered that I'd set the motion for March 19, 28 days after the filing, and that the court had notified me that it was moving the hearing to the uh, later date. Even then, although I knew I was being irrational, a little part of me thought the judge might say, well, sure, we moved the date, but you then had the burden to notify us that it would be outside the 30 days. Well, it all worked out fine. The anti-slap motion was granted with no mention of the 30 days, but that created the topic for today's podcast. What is the status of the 30-day rule, and if a court moves my hearing date to a date outside the 30 days, am I under some obligation to try and move it back? Well, the status of the 30-day rule, if we can call it that, has changed pretty wildly over the last several years. In 2004, the Court of Appeal held in Fair Political Practices Commission versus American Civil Rights Coalition, Inc., that the 30 days was jurisdictional. That was a crazy case. Get this. Talk about form over substance. There, the defendant reserved the first available hearing date, which was November 21st. Then they filed the motion and served it on October 15th. So we're all in agreement that November 21st was the first available hearing date and that a busy docket basically excuses the defendant from the 30-day rule. But the Court of Appeal held that the trial court had properly denied the motion under the 30-day rule. Why? Because defendant could have waited until October 23 to file the motion, and that would have put the November 21 date within the 30 days. The holding of fair political practices, and another case, Decker versus UD Registry, were specifically overturned by an amendment to the anti-slap statute. Prior to the 2006 amendment, section 425.16F had read, The motion shall be noticed for hearing not more than 30 days after service unless the docket conditions of the court require a later hearing. The 2006 amendment changed it to read, The motion shall be scheduled by the clerk of the court for a hearing not more than 30 days after the service of the motion unless the docket conditions of the court require a later hearing. 
This should have cleared up the matter since it appears pretty obvious that the legislature wanted to move the responsibility to the clerk to schedule the hearing within 30 days. But the court still fought the point. I've discussed here whether it is a good idea to bring an ex-party application to move up the hearing date when the court clerk fails to schedule the hearing within 30 days, or whether a declaration explaining why the hearing is not within 30 days is enough. My own practice has been to take the earliest available date from the reservation system and then just explain in the motion, usually in the notice, why the hearing is being set for that date. In 2016, opinions were still being issued on this subject. In Carnazes v. Arias, out of the 2nd District, the court ruled... A trial court may not properly deny an anti-slap motion on the grounds that the hearing was not scheduled within 30 days after service of the motion. Section 425.16 Division F requires the court clerk to schedule a special motion to strike for a hearing no more than 30 days after the motion is served if such a hearing date is available on the court's docket, but does not require the moving party to ensure that the hearing is so scheduled and does not justify the denial of a special motion to strike solely because the motion was not scheduled for a hearing within 30 days after the motion was served. That's quoting Hall v. Time Warner, Inc., The trial court was not permitted to deny the motion on the ground that the hearing was not scheduled within 30 days of service of the motion, nor may we reverse on this ground. So bottom line it, Aaron, if you set the hearing date as early as you can, given the court's docket conditions, do you need to concern yourself if that date is not within the 30 days of the motion filing date? Only to the point that you make sure to explain why you got that date and could not make it sooner. Even with the holding of Carnazes versus Aries, I see a court concluding that while it is the court clerk's responsibility to set the hearing within 30 days, defense counsel can't affirmatively set the hearing date after 30 days without a showing of a need to do so. How about my specific situation where I did set it within 30 days, but the court clerk changed the date past the 30 days? I think that would definitely be worth mentioning in your reply. Throw some language like this in there. Notice on timing. Counsel for defendants set this hearing within 30 days of the filing date on March 19th, but the court clerk changed the hearing date to March 26th, presumably because of the court's unavailability on the original date. That should cover it. If you sell t-shirts bearing the images of the Three Stooges, can you be sued for violating their right of publicity? And if you create and broadcast an eight-part docudrama centering on Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Can Olivia de Havilland sue you for including the details of her life in that story? Well, the just-decided case of de Havilland versus FX Networks LLC answers both those questions. I really enjoyed this anti-slap case because it beautifully illustrates how some judges just don't understand precedent. Olivia de Havilland, who is now 102 years old, good for you, did not like the way she was portrayed in the FX docudrama feud, Betty and Joan, centering on deceased actresses Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. In case you don't recognize the name, de Havilland portrayed uh, Melanie in Gone with the Wind. She was the one Scarlett was always jealous of, as I recall. So she sued FX, claiming the portrayal of her in the show amounted to the unauthorized use of her name and likeness for commercial gain. FX responded with an anti-slap motion. The trial court, Judge Holly Kendig, presiding, denied the anti-slap motion relying in large part on a California Supreme Court decision called Comedy 3 Productions v. Gary Saterup, Inc. The case involved the Three Stooges. The defendant company was selling t-shirts with images of the Three, of the three Stooges. Although the defendant has created somewhat stylized images, the appeal of the shirts was for the images of the Three Stooges, not the art of the images. 
Uh, you remember Andy Warhol did those images of Marilyn Monroe, but the appeal of those images was for the stylized interpretation, not merely for the image of Marilyn Monroe. So in Comedy 3, the Three Stooges case, the demarcation between commercial use and artistic expression came down to the effort to create a realistic image of the celebrity. The Supreme Court upheld the trial court's judgment because the t-shirts were just too realistic an image of the Three Stooges for any realistic argument that someone buying them was doing so for the art. So now back to Olivia de Havilland. Judge Kendig applied the weighing test of Comedy 3 and determined that FX had wanted to make the representation of de Havilland as real as possible, so it was akin to the Three Stooges case. Here's what she said, quote, Indeed, the more realistic the portrayal, the more actionable the expressive work would be. The First Amendment does not permit this result. Well, that's just crazy talk. It's not, it's not an issue of how realistic it is, except perhaps in the specific case of, of art, right? Olivia de Havilland does not own history and cannot prevent the portrayal of history. The fact that an actress portrays an historical figure in a docudrama is not the same as putting that same historical figure on a t-shirt. Someone watching the docudrama would be doing so for the plot line, not because they are seeking to purchase the image of Olivia de Havilland. The Supreme Court agreed and ordered that the denial of the anti-slap motion be reversed. Now, you might properly ask, what if the docudrama cast de Havilland in a false light? Well, that's a different issue, but it was addressed as well. The show portrayed a made-up interview between de Havilland and a Hollywood reporter. During the interview, de Havilland uses the word bitch in reference to her sister, Joan Fontaine. De Havilland sued, claiming that put her in a false light since she had never used that word. Apparently, de Havilland had referred to her sister as a dragon lady, which was the 1950s equivalent of calling a woman a bitch. And on that basis, the Supreme Court concluded that distinction was not so great as to support a claim for false light, especially since de Havilland is a public figure and must therefore show FX acted with malice. So to summarize, the case fell under the anti-slap motion in the first place because it involved free speech rights involving a matter of public interest. Counsel for de Havilland conceded this point. But de Havilland failed to satisfy the second prong, showing that she was more likely than not to succeed because she had no right to history. Thanks for dropping by. This show's takeaways are, one, getting your anti-slap motion heard within 30 days is certainly not as crucial as it once was, but don't forget to explain why it couldn't be heard within 30 days. And two, if the plaintiff's case supports little in the way of damages, consider the additional possible goal of getting it kicked to limited jurisdiction court. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. I am repeatedly blown away when I encounter judges and justices who have not the slightest clue about some procedural issue, some basic aspect of civil litigation that I find myself hitting my head against the wall trying to get them to understand. I don't expect a judge or justice to know everything there is to know, but when I'm explaining the basic point to them, they should at least concede that they might have a blind spot and shut up and listen. I've previously discussed my encounter with Judge Ariadne Simons in San Jose Superior Court, who did not understand the most basic evidentiary rules. Uh, the, the trial verdict had to be appealed to get it reversed, and the Court of Appeals said her reasoning on the evidentiary issues was perplexing. I once had to deal with Judge Horn in Orange County Superior Court. I was opposing an uh, in limine motion, and in my opposition, I made the statement that the evidence in question was important to my case because 
I would be arguing to the jury that it showed malice. Judge Horton looked at me with this face and shocked. He said, you don't get to talk to the jury and you, you certainly don't get to argue to the jury. So I had to explain to him the process of uh, arguing to the jury. And then this came up when I was in front of the Court of Appeal up in uh, Los Angeles earlier this month. This was a fun case. I had agreed to handle an appeal for free just because it presented the perfect opportunity to create case law on what I thought was a very important issue. The Court of Appeal issued a tentative ruling in advance of oral argument, and that tentative showed that I'd won the appeal, assuming the court stuck to its tentative. But there was an ancillary issue that was not addressed in the tentative, and I wanted to bring it to the court's attention. The trial court had done something truly bizarre, the trial judge. At the trial, I had argued that there was no private right of action under the Automotive Repair Act. The judge had agreed with me, but plaintiff's counsel uh, had then found a case, an appellate opinion, that involved the claim under the Automotive Repair Act, although that opinion contained no discussion of any right of action under that act. It was an opinion that had been issued in 1983. So to clear up any confusion, get this, they never, they never taught you this in legal research in law school. So to clear up any confusion, the judge picked up a phone and called the attorneys who had handled that case back in 1983 to ask them if the opinion turned on whether there was a private right of action under the Automotive Repair Act. Remember, there was no discussion of that whatsoever in the opinion itself. Well, the judge couldn't reach the defense attorney, but the plaintiff's attorney said, yeah, it was all about the Automotive Repair Act. So on that basis, the trial court gave a small award of damages to the plaintiff in my case, finding that there was a private right of action under the Automotive Repair Act. So I appealed, and that brings us back to the confused justice. The tentative was in my favor, so it comes time for argument. I'm the, I represent the appellant, so I stand up to give my argument. And in a really snarky voice, the presiding ju justice asks me if it's my intention to argue, even though the tentative was in my favor. And I responded that, yes, I was going to reserve the bulk of my time for rebuttal, but that I wanted to hit on a couple of points initially. To which she responds, so you want us to reverse our tentative? Okay, presiding justice, let's think about that for a moment. First, unlike every other tentative I have ever seen, your tentative contained disclaimers emphasizing the fact that this is only an indication of the current leanings of the court, but that the court may elect not to follow its own tentative. Second, although I can read the tentative, I have no way to know which or how many of the justices agree with that tentative. Perhaps one of the three is not yet convinced to my position, and I should take the opportunity to win him or her over. But perhaps the most important point it comes down to how oral argument works. If I reserve all of my time for rebuttal, I will be limited to the points raised by respondent. I want to argue that the tentative ruling does not conclude that it was error for the trial judge to be making phone calls to attorneys to ask what an opinion by the court of appeal meant. Right? Respondent is not going to bring up that point. You know, you prepare your perfect presentation only to have it derailed and blunted by having to explain simple procedure to a judge or justice. Then... For the ultimate beer-battered Bravo Sierra, I won the appeal and the verdict against my client was reversed, but the Court of Appeal did not publish the opinion. I took the appeal to create important precedent and the court decided not to publish it, even though this was a case where there's no case law on point. This would have been the perfect opportunity to clear that up, but they chose not to do so. I have received emails from a number of attorneys who are asking the court to publish the opinion, so we'll see how it turns out. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.